Hey, everybody out there in podcast land, this is Chris, the public safety guru. Before we begin today's lecture, I want to remind everybody that you can follow us on Instagram. The links are in our bio, as well as we are inviting you to participate in our new website, which is www.thepublicsafetyguru.com. You can register. Registration is free. Registration will always be free. The website is designed for those of you that are entering the public safety world. We want to be able to give you all the information we have so that you can be as successful as we were. Okay, so enough with the self-promotions. Let's go ahead and get started with your next lecture. So today, we are going to talk about head, spine, and chest injuries. For those of you that are in my class, this is the last of four lectures for your Block 5 trauma exam. This is a pretty intensive lecture, so hopefully it won't be too bad for you. So, you know the drill, pencils and papers and thinking caps, and let's go ahead and get started. We will be discussing head and spine injuries and chest injuries. Your homework assignment for this semester is you have to read the abdominal and genoulinary injury chapters, okay? So that's on you. So for this beginning part of the lecture, we're going to talk about some AMP, open and closed head injuries, motor vehicle accidents, scalp lacerations, skull fractures, traumatic brain injury, intracranial pressure, spinal injuries, spinal motion restriction, and helmet removal. A little review. The brain is protected by the meninges, which consists of the dura mater, arachnoid, and pia matter. The brain is broken up into three structures called the cerebrum, cerebellum, and brainstem, as well as the skull itself is broken up into different lobes. We have the frontal lobe, the occipital lobe, left and right parietal lobe, as well as left and right temporal lobe. Though the entire brain is important, the brainstem controls the vital centers of the body, it controls cardiac, respiratory, vasomotor, and RAS. Now I want you to picture the outermost portion of the body at the head, which is the skin. So we have the skin. Underneath the skin is the skull. Underneath the skull are arteries. Underneath those arteries are dura mater. Underneath the dura matter are veins. Underneath the veins is the arachnoid matter. And under that is CSF fluid, followed by pia matter, and then the brain. This is how you would label a diagram if you were asked to label it. Fortunately for you in this class, you're not. But for those of you that are going to go on to further your medical careers, you will have to label those structures accordingly. Um, this is something you'll have to do for the heart, different bones, blah, 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 blah. So this is time to start remembering those structures. Now near the cervical spine, this is when our cranio and spinal nerves begin to enter the body. So this is why we take spinal mobilization because C3, 4, 5 keep you alive. Remember that. C3, 4, 5 keep you alive. One of those nerves is what controls the diaphragm, and you have learned about that, and we'll probably talk about that in just a bit. I just can't actually remember that right now because this is a pretty big lecture. Spinal column. Spinal column is broken up into the cervic, thoracic, lumbar, 
sacrum, and coccyx. There are seven cervical spines, 12 thoracic, 5 lumbar, lumbar, 5 sacrum, and 4 coccyx. The way I tell my students to remember this is you have breakfast at 7, lunch at 12, and dinner at 5, and then you just have to remember the other 5-4. Now, if we suspect a head injury, we should also suspect a possible spinal injury and take appropriate treatment. In our EMT careers, we are going to have patients that have open and closed head injuries. Open are pretty easy to distinguish because, well, they're open and bleeding. The head is very vascular and you'll, you'll see the injury. It's the closed ones that we have to assess and be concerned about because, well, actually, you have to be concerned with all of them because we don't know what's happening inside of the brain. There is zero room for error in the brain cavity. There is no room for swelling. There is no room for extra fluid. There is no room for anything. Any of these things will cause intracranial pressure and will cause your patient to begin to essentially die right in front of you. Now, we used to see a lot of brain injuries, or I should say head injuries, with motor vehicle accidents. But that was before seatbelts were a law and airbags. Most cars today, most modern cars today, have airbags, and it's a law now that you have to wear a seatbelt. But when I first started working as an EMT, uh, seatbelts were not mandatory, nor wore motorcycle helmets. So we actually have come a long way. Now, when the skull does suffer a fracture, about 80% of skull fractures are lineal fractures. In other words, it's following a line, usually the sutures of the skull. We also have depressed skull fractures, which bony fragments are driven into the brain after the skull has been compromised. The next type of fracture that we have is a basal skull fracture. Signs and symptoms of this one include cerebral spinal fluid and or blood draining from the ears and the nose. The patient may also present with raccoon eyes and battle signs. The last fracture we have is a open skull fracture, and this is when the brain is actually exposed to the environment. Now, raccoon eyes are essentially that. Your patient has black eyes, but they're bilateral. Okay, these are, these are those raccoon eyes. The battle signs are when someone has bruising right behind their ears. Those are battle signs. And then, of course, we have cerebral spinal fluid leakage. What you're going to do as the EMTs, if you see fluid coming out of the ears or the nose, you're going to take a 4x4 four four and you're going to gently put it up to the ear and then you're going to take a and to absorb some of that blood. If you see what they call the halo effect, where there's blood in the center of your 4x4 four four with a yellowish fluid around it, that is the cerebral spinal fluid. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a basal or skull fracture, okay? CSF fluid is not supposed to be leaking out of the nose or the ear. This is not a good sign. Now, when I first started as a EMT and then trans- transitioned over to a paramedic, um, I really didn't learn about traumatic brain injury. TBI has become a uh, very significant topic in the medical field now as our soldiers during the Iraq and Afghanistan war were suffering from TBI um, after being exposed to roadside bombs. And then TBI became a very hot topic in the NFL with all the you know helmet injuries and then um, 
there are reports of athletes committing suicide, having aggressive behavior, and then they were di- after their death, they were diagnosed with traumatic brain injury. So a traumatic brain injury is that the brain has suffered continual trauma causing damage to it. And depending on where that damage is at will depend on the signs and symptoms that the patient will present with. But things that could lead to TBI are cerebral contusions, epidural bleeds, and subdural bleeds. And over time, intracranial pressure can and will increase. Thus, this is when the patient starts to exhibit some signs and symptoms. So what are some of the signs and symptoms of increased intracranial pressure? Well, simply headache, dizziness, possible history of loss of consciousness, decreasing level of consciousness, projectile vomiting. Now, this is the vomiting that you see in exorcists where it goes across the room. We're not talking about just a little bit of vomit coming out of their out of their mouth. No, we're talking about it goes across the room. Okay, think exorcist. Dilation of the same side pupil. And then Cushing's reflex. This is when you have hypertension with widening pulse pressure, bradycardia, and respiratory changes. And then late stage is we can have posturing, otherwise caused caused as called or described as decorticate and decerebrate. Let me spell those for you. Decorticate. D-E-C-O-R-T-I-C-A-T-E or decerebrate. D-E-C-E-R-E-B-R-A-T-E. Posturing, regardless, is bad. Now I want to talk about the pupils. We don't want to blow off people when they have unequal pupils and one is dilated. Let me give you my personal story behind that. My brother was 28 years old and I was at his house when he asked me to look at his eyes. And his right eye was fine, equal reactive to light, but his left eye was dilated and he had told me that he had been having visual disturbances. Well, he was he was fine. He was walking around. We were joking. Nothing was wrong. In the morning, my dad went to wake him up for work, and my brother was very lethargic and was unable to get out of bed. They rushed him to the emergency room. He was diagnosed with a bleed in the brain, and he died four days later. That dilated pupil was a tall tale sign that something was wrong and I should have picked up on that as a paramedic. I just thought he was having some type of other problem. And and when I think about it today, it's like, what other problem could he have been having? I don't know if he would have gone to the emergency room that night, if that would have changed his prognosis. From what we understand, no. But at very minimum, he sh- I should have driven him straight to the ER. So the pupils are the gateway to what's going on in the brain, ladies and gentlemen. That's the gist of this story. Now, I have seen patients in posturing. The decerebrate and decorticate, these are two types of different posturing. Now, in decerebrate, well, in both posturings, picture the body completely stiff, okay, completely stiff, head is back, and the patient's toes are pointed outward as if they were like flying Well, in decerebrate, the hands are going outward, okay? They're going outward away from the body. In decorticate, the body brings itself in, okay? Everything is coming inward at this point, except for the feet. The feet are still posturing out. So you may want to Google what that looks like, um, but just know that both are bad. I use a nice fancy word called Cushing's triad. 
This is widening pulse pressure, hypertension, bradycardia, and respiratory changes. What does Cushing's triad look like? Okay, on your paper, this is what I want you to do. I want you to put BP dash heart rate dash R dash. Now for BP, put 128 over 80. Heart rate, put 88, strong and regular. Respirations, put 16 with adequate tidal volume, ATV. I want you to repeat the BPHRR thing three more times. Okay, so for the second one, I want you to put 138 over 74, heart rate 80, strong, regular, respirations 20, adequate tidal volume. For the third one, I want you to put BP 156 over 70, heart rate 56, strong, regular, respirations 24, irregular. And for the last one, I want you to put BP 188 over 64, heart rate 48, respirations 32, and irregular. If you look at the first one that you did and the last one that you did, do you see how the blood pressure is beginning to rise and the pulse is dropping? This is that widening pulse pressure. This is indicative of intracranial pressure. This is why we take vital signs on our critical patients every five minutes. This is what you will see during your treatment and transport of your patients. So as that intracranial pressure is increasing, you're going to have hypertension, bradycardia, and erratic respirations. Now we're going to transition over to spinal injuries. About 37% of our spinal injuries are a result of a vehicle accident. About another 24% are from falls, 29% from domestic violence or violence per se, and then 5% from sports and then 5% from other. Now at cerebral spinal vertebrae 5 and 6, if there is injury here, significant injury, someone could become a paraplegic. This is why we take those spinal precautions. The phrenic nerve runs through C3, 4, and 5. That's why we say C3, 4, 5 keeps you alive because the phrenic nerve is in this area. Okay, actually the phrenic nerve is C3. So this is why we're taking that spinal precautions. If you remember from your initial AMP, the phrenic nerve is what controls the diaphragm. No diaphragm, no life. When we were on a call and we are arriving, remember, the Chris Cano algorithm to test taking. The first thing we're looking for is BSI as the answer. So we take care of ourselves first. So if you are arriving on a scene and it's a motor vehicle accident and you are getting out of your ambulance and we're asking you what should you do next, you're going to look for any answer associated with BSI. If that includes putting on your helmet, putting on your safety vest, this is all BSI stuff because that stuff is going to keep you visible and safe. Now, if that's not an answer, we're going to move to scene survey. How many patients do we have? Penman, all this type of stuff. And if there's no answer there, we're going to go to general impression. And at that point in time, we are going to go into our ABCs. Now, if we, have, if we suspect some type of spinal injury, how are we going to open up the airway? Well, that's going to be with the jaw thrust. You should be learning the jaw thrust during your skills and whatever program you're in, but that's what we do. We open the jaw thrust and we assess the airway. This is two things we are doing at one time. Then we move to breathing, 
and then we move to circulation. Remember, we fix A, then we go to B, we fix B, then we go to C. Once C is fixed, we get to play with our toys. Now, when we have patients that we are going to treat for possible spinal injury, we want to maintain the head and cervical spine in a neutral in-line position. We want to apply a cervical collar, and then we're going to finish the assessment. The EMT that maintains that alignment is stuck at the head. They are married to the head. They are going nowhere until we have put that patient on the spinal board and taped the head down, that EMT will stay in that position. So once you're there, you're there. Unfortunately, in the field, you're going to see all sorts of weird things, but textbook this is where you are at. Once you apply that manual traction on that spine, keeping it straight, um, you got to stay there, okay? But you're going to see other things once you make it out into the field. Now, you should conduct a CMS prior to putting on the collar. And then when we put on the collar, we should conduct another CMS. We want to ensure that we did not do anything wrong or the patient's condition did not change because of actions we took. So let's run through a treatment algorithm. Manually stabilize the head and run the primary assessment together. Do the rapid trauma assessment. Remember, front to back, head to toe, looking for anything that's going to kill your patient. Assess the, assess the neck. We're going to conduct a CMS, put the C-collar on the patient, roll and park the patient on a long backboard, Secure the body, chest first, secure the head, conduct a CMS. That is the last thing we do. This is your algorithm to putting someone in spinal immobilization. Let me reiterate this. Hold head until it is taped down. You are married to the head. Once you put your left and right hand on the patient's head, it is not to come off until someone tapes that head down. Okay? Don't be a good EMT, be a great EMT. Now, I know we talked about helmet removal. If you were in my class, this is where we break and then we start doing the skill of helmet removal. So whatever program you're in, you should be learning how to remove the helmet in the field, FYI. Now, how does this differ from pediatrics? As a paramedic, I always felt, and it's true, that the best place for our pediatric patients to remain is in their car seats. Their car seats are just like the most phenomenal place that we can keep our pediatric patients in. Now, we just have to do some modifications, maybe put some padding on the left and right side, and then tape the head down to the car seat so they don't move their head around. Very good place. We can also use... Um, the KEDS, the KEDS sled, K-E-D. And then, of course, we have specific spinal uh, mobilization devices made by manufacturers. This is all going to differ from where you work and who you work for. Now, just off topic on pediatrics, when it peds because of how their design is laying flat on their back, they have a tendency to put their chin forward towards their chest. To keep that uh, head in a neutral position, it is okay to put some towels or a blanket underneath their shoulders to get that head to stay in the inline position. You may possibly see this on your pediatric block exam for those of you that are in my course. If you don't know if a patient has a spinal injury or you don't know if you should take precautions, I always say when in doubt, fully immobilize.
It's that simple. We take them to the hospital. The doctor can remove all that stuff. But let's just err on the side of our patient. Remember, we're patient advocates. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we've been about 20 minutes into this lecture. We're going to go ahead and take a break for our sponsor, and we're going to come back and talk about chest injuries. All right, welcome back, everybody. Let's talk about chest injuries. We're going to do a little A&P. We're going to talk about rib fractures, flail chest, pneumothorax and hemothorax, attention pneumo, cardiac tamponade, cardiac contusion. I always have trouble spelling this. Uh, or saying this, comatio cordis, and notice how I threw a little Hispanic into a Latin word, traumatic asphyxiation, and then great vessel laceration slash dissection. So in the chest, underneath that rib cage, we have our lungs, our heart, and our diaphragm. These are all vital structures that the rib cage protects. When ribs are fractured, there are associated signs and symptoms, which include Pleuritic chest pain. Remember, this is chest pain upon inspiration. Blunt trauma. Patient tells you that they had blunt trauma or witnesses do. Shortness of breath and rapid shallow respirations. And if the patient is awake, they're usually self-splinting. Now, this is what I need you to remember. Throughout the course, I've been telling you shallow respirations equal BVM. Shallow respirations equal BVM. Okay, this is that one particular question where no okay the shallow respirations is caused by them when normally under normal conditions when we're talking shallow respirations our patients are aloc altered level of consciousness or totally unconscious okay that's when we apply the bvm in this one your patient's going to be sitting upright talking to you but they're going to be taking rapid shallow respirations because they're doing it they're controlling the breathing because it's so painful with every inspiration that's the difference, okay? And when I say self-splint, you if you've ever had broken ribs, you know you, you held your ribs in yourself. This is one of the best things the patients can do. Um, I've just had the patients hold their ribs because there's not much we're going to be able to do unless it's a flail chest, and we'll talk about that in just a second. Now, a flail segment is a fracture of ribs in two or more areas causing what we call paradoxical movement. P-A-R-A-D-O-X-I-A-L. Now, paradoxical movement is this. When the rest of the chest is moving in one direction, that broken flail segment goes in the opposite. And it does this back and forth with every inspiration and expiration. If you see paradoxical movement, you better answer flail chest. Now, how do we deal with the flail chest? We deal with the flail chest with bulky dressing. Now, if you see a question asking you, you have a flail chest, what should you do? You want to take your gloved hand and you want to hold that flail chest down until your partner can get the bulky dressing ready. Every time that flail segment moves, the patient is in pain, okay? It is very painful. So you need to apply some pressure holding it until you can get it bandaged with bulky dressing. So remember that. If you recall, during our initial anatomy and physiology of the lungs, we talked about parietal pleura and visceral pleura. So when we have a pneumothorax or hemopneumothorax, imagine the visceral pleura is starting to collapse and the parietal pleura is left. That space between the parietal pleura and the visceral pleura is either being filled with air and or blood, causing our pneumo or hemothorax. Signs and symptoms of a pneumo or hemothorax are... Signs of shock, 
shortness of breath, unequal or diminished lung sounds, and sub-Q emphysema. Now, sub-Q emphysema is very interesting, and it's awesome, not so much for your patient, but it's awesome for you to diagnose because it feels like Rice Krispies underneath the skin. It's that simple. It's like Rice Krispies. You're like, oh my God. Once you feel it, it's like, you know when you have bubble wrap and you can't stop popping it? It's like you can't stop touching it, but you need to. You know why? Because it's painful. Your patient's in pain. Every time you touch it, to compress it, whatever you're doing, palpate it, your patient's like, ah, ah, ah. So assess it, feel it. That way you know what it's going to be like next time. But what you need to remember is this is that if you have sub-Q emphysema, that means air is leaking out of the lungs. That is never good. Air is leaking out of the lungs and being caught in the tissue of the body. We are going to treat a pneumo or hemo with possibly, well, we are, with an occlusive dressing, which we're going to tape on three sides. The fourth side is considered the flutter valve, which allows the air to escape out, but the other three sides allow the air not to come back in because every time the patient breathes, air will attempt to go in through the hole in the chest. So this is why on chest and back injuries where we have punctures, gunshot wounds, we want to treat that with an inclusive dressing tape on all three sides. Now, attention pneumo is when the pneumothorax is getting worse and it's causing the vena cava to compress, the aorta to compress, the heart to compress, and the uninfected lung to compress. So it's now causing problems everywhere else, and this is what a tension pneumo is. So we consider that tension pneumo a worsening pneumothorax, and signs and symptoms of this include shock, progressive shortness of breath, unequal to absent lung sounds, sub-Q emphysema, JVD, and narrow pulse pressure. You're like, what? Cushing's triad. Now we have narrowing pulse pressure. Eesh. When is it going to end, right? Yeah, I know. I understand. Believe me, I understand. Okay, so let's describe narrowing pulse pressure for you. So I want you to do your same drill. Blood pressure, heart rate, and respirations. Do this three times. So for blood pressure, put 120 over 80. Heart rate, 110, strong, regular. Respirations, 24 with adequate tidal volume, but with some diminished lung sounds. Under the next one, blood pressure, 110 over 84. Heart rate, 120, weak, regular. Respirations, 28 with increased tidal volume, possibly some unequal chest rise or absent lung sounds. And then your third one, BP, 94 over 80. Heart rate, 136, weak, regular. Respirations 36 with decreased tidal volume, unequal chest rise, and absent lung sounds. So in this one, this narrowing pulse pressure, can you see the difference? Look at your blood pressure and look at your pulse. Blood pressure is dropping, hypotension, signs of shock, and our heart rate is is increasing, tachycardia. Remember, the first compensatory mechanism of shock is tachycardia. Hence the reason why the blood, or I'm sorry, the heart rate is rising, but because the body can only maintain itself for so long, the blood pressure is starting to drop. This is what you will see. That is narrowing pulse pressure. Now, with this occlusive dressing that you apply to the chest, one of the things you may find is that it becomes very sticky and air will not be able to escape. You will need to open it up, and that's referred to as burping. 
Usually this happens and you'll notice it when the patients uh, begin to experience more shortness of breath. So the air is not able to leave. The lung is still collapsing on itself. There's no room. It was working before. So remember to burp this uh, occlusive dressing. It, It doesn't have to happen all the time, but it is a possibility. If you were in the classroom lecture, we would be watching a video of someone sustaining chest trauma. In chest trauma, one of the things we want to be concerned about, as well as you know, broken ribs, fractured sternum, all these different things, is a condition known as a cardiac tamponade. The heart has a protective sac, and in some injuries, this uh, sac will fill up with blood, causing the heart to not be able to beat. The heart's working fine. It wants to work, but the sac has filled up with blood. This is a cardiac tamponade. It reduces the ventricular filling. Um, this one, you'll have a narrowing pulse pressure. So now, see, we're building upon that narrowing pulse pressure. Signs and symptoms are shock, and then we have Beck's triad. You're probably thinking to yourself, what now? We have Cushing's, and now we have narrowing pulse pressure, and now we have Beck's triad. Well, Beck's triad is just narrow pulse pressure, distance or muffled heart sounds, and JVD. You don't need to remember Beck's triad. This is a paramedic nurse doctor thing but it's just extra information so you uh, know it because in reality we're not teaching you what muffled heart sounds sound like we teach you what lung sounds sound like we teach you what the blood pressure sounds like but we're not teaching you about muffled heart sounds or uh, any uh, you know, abdominal sounds intestinal sounds so these are things that you're not learning in class thus you're not required to know them test question During the secondary assessment, the EMT notes instability and a possible flail segment to the patient's lower left lateral chest. The EMT should immediately A. Start positive pressure ventilation B. Apply bulky dressing to the area C. Auscultate breath sounds D. Stabilize the segment with his hand. Think about what I just said a few minutes ago, ladies and gentlemen. If you answered D, you are correct. A patient was ejected from a motorcycle at a high rate of speed. He exhibits labor breathing. Breath sounds are clear and unequal, but diminished on the left side. Chest rise is equal. On exam, you find subcutaneous emphysema. Given these assessment findings, what type of injury is likely? A. Pneumothorax. B. Tension pneumo. C. Cardiac tamponade. D. Flail chest. If you answered pneumo, you would be correct. We have labored breathing, breath sounds are present, but unequal, and then we have sub-Q emphysema. So we're not seeing that signs of that tension pneumo yet, okay? Next question. A patient was ejected from a motorcycle at a high rate of speed. He exhibits labor breathing, which is getting worse. Breath sounds are absent on the left. On exam, you find subcutaneous emphysema and JVD. Vital signs are pulse 120, Respiration is 28 with diminished tidal volume. Blood pressure is 100 over 80. Given these assessment findings, what type of injury is likely? Well, if you answered tension pneumo, you would be correct. Oh, what kind of injuries would be likely? It should have been A, pneumo, B, tension pneumo, C, cardiac tamponade, D, flail chest. And the answer would have been tension pneumo. The reason why is that we have the breath sounds which are absent. And we have sub-QE with JVD, and now we're seeing the vital signs starting to drop. So this is tension pneumo. Essentially, the pneumothorax is worsening. A patient was ejected from a motorcycle at a high rate of speed. He exhibits labor breathing and is confused. Breath sounds are clear and equal bilaterally. 
While assessing his breath sounds, you notice the heart sounds are faint. On exam, you note JVD. Vitals are pulse 120, respiration is 28 with increased tidal volume, blood pressure is 100 over 80. Given these assessment findings, what type of injury is likely? A. Pneumothorax. B. Tension pneumo. C. Cardiac tamponade. D. Flail chest. Well, because of the faint heart sounds, the answer is going to be C. Cardiac tamponade. Now, if you were in my class, you know I always harp on you need to know what normal sounds like. This is why I tell you to take lung sounds on everybody in the room as well as blood pressures on everybody in the room because if you know what normal sounds like, you're going to definitely know what, what abnormal is. If you take your stethoscope and you put it over directly over the heart and listen to your patient's heart, you will know what that normal sound sounds like. Now, let's now say you fast forward, you're an EMT, you're in the field, you have someone who suffered significant chest trauma. And you go ahead and say, you know what, I'm going to listen to see what their heart sounds like. You're going to know what muffled heart sounds or diminished sounds sound like because you know what normal is. And it is very apparent when it's not normal. So these are different things that you can do for yourself as an EMT, taking yourself from being a good EMT to a great EMT. What I want to do at this point is I want to break down three three by 5 cards for you. One card should be labeled pneumothorax. The other one should be labeled tension pneumo and the third cardiac tamponade. All right, on the back of pneumothorax, pneumothorax signs and symptoms are shortness of breath, diminished lung sounds, and subacute emphysema. For tension pneumo, you have diminished to absent lung sounds, worsening shortness of breath, JVD, narrow pulse pressure, subacute emphysema, and tracheal deviation. And then for cardiac tamponade, you have clear, equal breath sounds, and Beck's triad, JVD, muffled heart tones, and narrow pulse pressure. Now remember that comatillo cortis, I keep putting it with some Spanish accent. I don't know why I do that. I do that during my lecture, but this is a Latin term. All right, so what is this? Believe it or not, ladies and gentlemen, there is a significant time that if somebody is struck in the chest at the perfect time, the patient could be put into ventricular fibrillation. So you need to remember that, that this can happen. It's usually someone is struck in the chest at this particular moment of the cardiac cycle, putting the patient into V-fib. The immediate treatment is an AED. You can save someone's life when applying that AED. Okay, let's talk some abdomen and judicial injuries. This will be just a quick lecture as this is a homework assignment for you, but I just wanted to go over some key concepts. So we're going to talk a little bit about some AMP, difference between hollow and solid organs, closed and open injuries, evisceration, kidney injuries, genital injuries, and sexual assault. By now, ladies and gentlemen, you have should, should have learned that we break up the abdomen into four quadrants and the organs that are contained in those various four quadrants. This is something that you should have already memorized and you know. Now, hollow organs, when injured, pop, can cause peritonitis, a rigid belly, hot flush skin, and sepsis. A solid organ, these fracture can cause shock, 
a distended belly, patient could present with pale, cool, moist skin, and hypovolemia. Think of a liver which has been fractured and is now bleeding out of control. Now, as with anything, we can have closed and open injuries. Any injuries to the chest area, I be, in my opinion, you should be thinking of occlusive dressing. In the abdomen area, we want to maybe start thinking about some uh, 4x4s, curlix, abdominal dressings, especially when you have the intestines which are exposed via evisceration. It is our job to keep those intestines moist. So you're going to use an abdominal pad, you're going to soak it, and you're going to keep the intestines moist and sterile. The kidneys are in their own space called the retroperitoneal area, and they can suffer injury. Think about someone being struck to the back. A sign symptom would be is if the patient presents with any type of bleeding in their urine, okay? For a little shock review, let's talk about compensated and decompensated shock. The signs and, signs and symptoms of compensated shock are restless and anxiousness, tachycardia, tachypnea, pale, cool, moist skin, nausea, vomiting, and decreased urination and thirst. Decompensated is hypotension, altered level of consciousness, mottled skin, and dilated pupils. For our patients, remember, they will initially start off in compensated shock, then work their way to decompensated, then eventually irreversible. Our general treatment guidelines are BSI, ABCs, High flow oxygen, position will be supine, shock, or high fowlers, a blanket. I was actually going to say blankie. Oh my gosh. Nothing by mouth and splint as needed. Now, of course, in EMS, we can come across any type of emergencies, which include genital injuries. So if we have an amputated part, we are going to treat it just like any other amputated part. We're going to rinse it if it's dirty, wrap with dry dressing. Bag it, cool it, and transport it. Now, you may come across a patient that has bleeding out of the ear, nose, anus, vagina. The thing I want you to take away from this actual little part, part is we do not pack bandages, okay? We don't start shoving bandages into these orifices, all right? We can place a pad over the vaginal opening. If it becomes soaked, we remove it and put another one. There are We will have emergencies where the patient presents with abnormal vaginal bleeding. Okay, So we just remove the blood-soaked uh, pads at that point in time. Now, on this last part to end the lecture, unfortunately, is let's talk about sexual assault. We will have patients who have not reported their sexual assault to the police. They do this for a number of reasons. Normally, it's because they feel ashamed and that they did something wrong. If the patient presents you with a sexual assault, number one, the first thing you need to do is take care of your patient, okay? Worry about the law enforcement aspect later, but let's take care of our patient. Now, some of the things we want to do to help law enforcement is we want to discourage the patient from washing themselves, defecating, urinating, changing their clothes. We are there to provide supportive care. The reason why we want them to stop doing those things or discourage them from doing, doing those things is that there's DNA attached to those items. And it's very important that a SART nurse collects that evidence so hopefully we at law enforcement can get the perpetrator. Okay, So that's why that's important. This is where you want to show your empathy, ladies and gentlemen. You want to, once again, just be supportive of your patient. They just went through a very traumatic event. All right. 
That ends this lecture. This is the fourth of four lectures in preparation for the Block 5 trauma exam. If you're not in my program, this lecture can be utilized for your trauma exam as well as for national registry. You know the drill by now. I'm asking you just to follow, leave feedback. You know the places where you can go and click that follow or like button. Good luck to you on your testing. And remember, there is always a silver lining in EMS. Not everyone can be an EMT, but anyone can be a firefighter. All right, ladies and gentlemen, good luck to you and have a good day. Oh, my God.